Hey, everybody, welcome back. And this week's episode is celebrating not Valentine's Day, but International Day of Women and Girls in Science. That was February 11th. And on this episode, I get to chat with another great woman in science. And for me, celebrating this day is much more meaningful than Valentine's Day. That's because, well, first, if you have a partner, hopefully you're celebrating with them every day, like a French angelfish. And second, having your partner care about what you're doing, your accomplishments, your work, and your goals, I guess carries more weight for me than a box of chocolates and some flowers. So let's elevate our symbols of love in addition to celebrating all of the amazing women doing incredible science. And here's sending some hearts out to all of them every day. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. This week's guest is Samantha Farquhar. She is a dynamic and diverse scientist, and I got to talk to her about her past and present work. Before we get to it, just a quick shout out to the American Geophysical Union for their support of Wild Connection and this very special Women in Science series through their Sharing Science Grant. All right, let's take a trip around the world with Samantha Farquhar. All right, everybody, I am really excited to welcome Samantha Farquhar to the show. She is an interdisciplinary scientist working in a lot of exciting areas, and I'm really thrilled to have her. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Gosh, you know, okay, so this, you are part of what is a special series called Women in Science. I, you know, really want to celebrate women and all of our achievements. And so the American Geophysical Union is the sponsor for for this podcast uh, and this series. And I'm just, you know, one of the things I like listeners to learn about is, is other scientists and that we're real people. And we, we do a lot of different things, not just science, but you are currently getting your PhD in, in North Carolina. So, you know, can you give us a little bit of, of, uh, how did you get to be interested in science and, and go on this journey? A PhD is not a trivial thing to pursue. So, so what got you interested? Yeah, I love uh, problem solving. I love research. And I like that, like, uh, I mean, it depends on your, your, your PhD program that you join. But like in an interdisciplinary program, like when I'm in, it's super creative, right? Because you get to try to figure out new things and combine new topics and methods and solve like really complex problems. And so I like the creativity that this PhD program offers. And I like that I can have these like crazy research questions and then you know, at least try, attempt to like uh, solve them. I've always been interested in science, mainly marine science. I don't know if that's just because when I was younger, my grandparents lived in Florida and that's why I used to go and visit them because I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is not not an ocean there. Just, you know, 
uh, a nice little city in the Piedmont of North Carolina. Um, but yeah, but I also, you know, I, I studied marine biology um, at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Uh, but I always kind of liked helping people in international relations. And so alongside my, uh, my bachelor's degree, I actually double majored in international studies. And I focused on like humanitarian environment uh, st studies as like a concentration, if that even makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then when I, when I graduated with my, my, I guess, double bachelor or double major, I was like, okay, I, I, I know about like fish and I know about like people like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? Uh, and that led me to take a kind of like a post bachelor research experience internship uh, in Nepal, which is funny because, you know, they don't have an ocean, they don't. Um, but I was working on like an aquaculture uh, development project that was meant to help empower women because in a traditional Nepali society, women are still kind of stuck at the household um, and they have a lot of uh, obligations. They're usually the ones cooking, taking care of the kids. Uh, and so there is this need to figure out what's something that would be culturally appropriate, um, but beneficial to the women. And so uh, fish farming turned out to be a really cool thing, especially, um, you know, you dig a pond close to the woman's house. It's pretty easy for them to maintain. Uh, they don't really have to do much to feed leftover rice to it from the meals. And they were, we were farming carp. And so, you know, carp are pretty, I don't know if you know much about carp, but they're pretty hardy. In <laughs> uh, the United States, they're quite invasive, unfortunately. Uh, but it's funny, everywhere else in the world, they actually eat carp. So it worked out. Um, but yeah, it was very formative for me. And I kind of got into this like, okay, fisheries, um, developments, uh, conservation, which kind of came later on. And that led me to my master's, which was more policy um, focused. And then I earned a Fulbright to, to Madagascar. At some point, I went there for nine months. I worked uh, in a, a coastal uh, community that was trying to set up these marine protected areas and also kind of start some um, like aquaculture as like an alternative livelihood. Good. Now I am back in, in North Carolina, here at East Carolina University, uh, and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next, how to combine all these interests while also learning some new things and, and just, you know, really using this time to explore all these other interests I have, which is what a PhD program is really good for. But we'll see how long. Uh, so far, I'm on my year two, but, you know, with all my different ideas, I might be here for like the next eight years. We'll see. <laughs> well, that's a, well, isn't that the fun thing about science, right? Is it gives you a lot of people don't think that scientists are creative people, but I think we are extremely creative people. And there's so many of the projects that you've just laid out that I want to, uh, you know, talk about a lot more and, and, but I'm struck by similarities here, even though no fish background here, I was in Nepal a long time ago. Awesome. And, yeah. And I, I've done work on lemurs, which is my, my very loose link to Madagascar. So, you know, one of the things that really struck me was how many, what I love about what you're doing is you're integrating. And, and that's why it makes sense that you're in an interdisciplinary program now, but, but that you've been able to integrate a lot of different passions into, you know, everything that you're doing. And sometimes when we get into science, you know, you're funneled into like a singular focus or a singular question. And, and so I think that uh, it's really important for people to realize that 
that we can, we can bring a lot of different skills and talents and, and abilities and passions to our work. So I love that you're getting the chance to explore that. I guess one thing I was also really intrigued about because, uh, you know, this, I'm, I'm all about science communication. I was intrigued by, by something I read that you wrote about your philosophy, which was that the world doesn't need more researchers, but it needs more communicators. So can you talk to me a little bit about what, you know, what that means to you? Yeah. And I've really come to believe this more and more now that I'm in an interdisciplinary program, because when you're in interdisciplinary science, you have to be able to walk into a room, regardless of what the, the, the major discipline is there and be able to at least have a conversation about what it is that you're trying to figure out. And I have definitely been in a situation where, you know, depending on the research question, if we need to use like social science methods, like going out, talking to people, uh, doing surveys, some scientists hate social science and surveys. And, you know, they're like, we can't trust that. Like they could be lying. Like they don't know what they're talking about. Um, And so it's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I've just, I've met people who are very stuck in their discipline, which is normal. That's the way you've been trained your entire life. But, and I, you know, I see more and more people who go down these paths of just studying and studying, which is totally fine. But when you talk about like really trying to address some of the complex problems that our world is facing these days, like it's going to take more than one discipline to solve. Like you're going to have to be able to work on a team with people from around the world, different backgrounds, uh, educationally, culturally, different languages. And so I just think with, uh, I always think uh, that communication should be a required class in, in PhD school, regardless of your program. Um, and even like, you know, I'll read papers on like, you know, peer reviewed papers. I'm like, what is this? This is not fun at all. Um, so now even when I write my science, like peer reviewed articles for like, you know, a specific journal, I try to make them as inclusive as possible because, um, you know, I mean, there's so many common, like, uh, there's so many things that like comments on this. Like I just watched the movie. Don't look up uh, over the break. And that's, you know, a great example of how scientists can be like, oh, we got to do this. We got to do this. But if no one understands them or takes them seriously, or just like really are scientists aren't able to convey their point, especially when it comes to like policy, it's like, well, <laughs> you did all that research and you did that PhD for nothing. Um, so I just being able to talk to people, regardless if they're a fellow scientist from a different discipline or a policymaker or a politician, like it's so important. And it, you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, I don't know, I think being able to talk to people is something that's, it's hard to teach, right? And sometimes some people are just kind of naturally, uh, gifted at it, but it's something you really have to focus on, uh, cultivating. I, I completely agree. And, you know, one of the things that, that is interesting about what you're saying is that I think one of the common connectors, whether it's, you know, um, you know, communities, individuals, other disciplines, is that as human beings, we all respond to stories. And, and I've discovered that if I tell a story, even in a paper, re- writing a research paper, if you make it a story, right, everybody likes it a little bit more. And so, so how do you integrate storytelling into your work, uh, either in your research or in how you interact with some of the communities that you're working with? Yeah, so when it comes to my research writing, I always try to to have like a narrative. Um, it has to be, you know, professional, can't be too, I guess, flamboyant, unfortunately. Um, but there is, I mean, there's work that shows uh, that, like, oh man, there's a paper, I can't remember it, but it's it, it compared uh, 
climate change articles that were written in a narrative style versus a more jargony, objective style. And the, the papers that were written in a narrative style got cited way more. I'm um, just showing that people were reading them more and probably enjoying them and sharing them, that kind of thing. Um, so I try to like write a narrative and like, um, I'm really big into applied, like whatever I'm researching, I want to know what are the broader implications? Why does this matter? How is this going to be useful in the real world? Um, when I work with a community, I'm very much trying to work for the community. I'm not like, you know, there is a history with scientists, um, science just being very colonial, people coming in really like scientists obsessed with a question, they go to a community, they get all the information they want and they leave and the community's like, well, what's, well, okay, but what does that do for us? We gave you our time, our attention, uh, sometimes even more and like they don't get any back. So now my, a lot of my research now is I'm looking for communities to partner and asking them like, hey, what are you guys interested in? Like, what do you guys need? Like, what can I do in my position as a PhD student to, to aid you? Um, and then trying to start a conversation from there. Um, and so it just comes down to listening, right? It's, I'm not really trying to pitch anything. Like I have, you know, my interests. So I'll be like, hey, like, I kind of know about this stuff. Like any, any, <laughs> is there any synergy here? Um, but yeah, I think being able to listen and be able to, to talk to somebody on that level. Like, obviously, you know, if I'm talking to another professor, I got to like bring in that theory and all that other jargon stuff um but if i'm talking to like a community who's a group of fishermen you know if i talk to them about social ecological resilience theory they're gonna be like what is that like that doesn't like i don't know what that means but even though they're they're definitely part of a social ecological system but their worldview um and their perception of that is going to be a little bit different you know what i mean I do. I do. And speaking of fishermen right now, you're doing some work on shrimp and that's bringing you in to conversations with fishermen. So can you tell us a little bit about your current research on shrimp, what you're looking at and, and how that intersects with that community? Yeah. So right now um, I am based in uh, well, Greenville, North Carolina, but it's in Eastern North Carolina. And this area historically has had a lot of fishing activity. Um, at one point in time, uh, North Carolina was like the shrimp capital of the world, uh, specifically Southport, North Carolina. Um, but since then, uh, you know, fishing, shrimp fishing has kind of gone down. Um, and part of that is because increased regulation. We have a lot of competition from uh, imported seafood and that kind of thing. But shrimp also, we're seeing this really interesting trend where uh, the species composition of shrimp is changing. So in the past, there's been a lot of... Um, brown shrimp and those are usually in our we have a huge estuary North Carolina and like all the brown shrimp go in the estuary and then fishers usually go there and and go after them um, but now we're seeing that brown shrimp seem to be decreasing but now there's a lot of white shrimp um, which are typically off the shore and well, so there's this change going and, and it looks to be like it's environmentally uh driven so there's been a lot of changes in temperature lots of precipitation and as you know as like an animal behavior person like and animals are so tuned into these cues. And so when their cues start changing, it changes their seasons and they might start their migrations earlier or their breeding earlier or later. And it just kind of, it just changes everything. Well, so I have a colleague who you've already spoken to, uh, Dr. Leela Schindler, and she is doing these really fancy environmental models where she's putting all this data into a computer and the computer is helping us uh, figure out what environmental factors are the most uh influencing these changes in species composition. And, you know, she's kind of said similar stuff, a lot of rain, a lot of uh, temperature changes. We have these big hurricanes that are coming. We have issues with pollution from all the rivers that are going into the estuary. 
Um, but what I'm doing is I'm going out into the shrimper community, uh, and I'm at least trying to, uh, and I'm trying to talk to them and be like, hey, like, what's going on with the shrimp? What are you guys thinking? What are you feeling? Like, is this normal? Um, and we're really drawing on local ecological knowledge um, to, you know, to understand what they are thinking. And this makes sense, right? Because I, I love shrimp, love eating shrimp. Um, but I do not spend, like, you know, most of my year on the water every single day, you know, really fishing for shrimp and understanding like that. So um, obviously a shrimper who spends their life on the water is going to understand shrimp way more than I ever will. Like I, like, I have a lot of catching up to do. So trying to figure out what shrimpers are thinking and then comparing these to this environmental models will help us uh, kind of get a more holistic picture of what's going on with the shrimp and, um, you know, what can be done. Shrimpers aren't super happy that white, you know, they used to, uh, shrimpers aren't super happy that white shrimp are now becoming more abundant. Brown shrimp, I guess they say, tastes better. Um, but also it's a huge gas issue because when they have to, to travel offshore, they use a lot of gas and it costs more. And then sometimes they can't get back into the, the estuary where they drop their shrimp off because the uh, we have a really shallow estuary and sometimes they get kind of stuck in the inlets. And so then they might have to go all the way to Virginia to drop off their shrimp and it becomes a whole ordeal. Um, so it's changing livelihoods and it's definitely economically changing uh, expectations. Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing that I thought about on the shrimp side was I'm wondering if because of the changing conditions, so generally, right, you can't have two species that are occupying the same niche and there's always going to be one that's a better competitor. So if things, if, if the white shrimp can tolerate certain conditions better than the brown shrimp, then that could also explain, you know, conditions changed and, and the white shrimp are able to tolerate that a little bit better, which means they now can outcompete the brown shrimp. So I don't know if that's happening, but to the point of, of local knowledge and that these, these shrimpers have this information because a lot of times, if I'm not mistaken, this is generational, right? Their, their families have been shrimpers and for several generations. And so a lot of times they've seen changes. They could maybe pinpoint. I noticed in this year that I started seeing a shift. And is that helpful when you're trying to build these models for the timing uh, and looking for these environmental correlates? Yeah, if I if I'm like in a shrimping community and it's it's usually hit and miss, right? I'll go travel down Folkport and walk around, and if somebody wants to talk to me, great. But very often, um, I'm still working on building trust with this community, so not everyone wants to talk, and that's totally normal. That's totally fine. I respect that. Um, it makes my research very slow, <laughs> just because it takes time to build a relationship, right? But luckily, like I'm from North Carolina, I'm pretty good at making small talk, especially about the weather and. So if I find a, a, an older gentleman who's been shrimping for, for like 30 plus years, that's like golden. Like that person is going to be a gold mine of information. Um, yeah. So I look for, I look for anyone who can talk to me, but if I find a, a family that's been involved in the shrimping industry for a while, that's, that's excellent. If I find an older gentleman who might even be retired and has like all day to talk to me, excellent. But usually it's like these, if I go out and I walk around, you know, there are people that are working on their boats. They're busy. They don't want to talk to me because they're, you know, they're focused on other things, which I totally get. So it's, it's kind of collecting these pieces of information here or there and then uh, trying to put it all together. Uh, so this, you know, I've been working on this project now for a year and a half. And I can tell you COVID has not made it any easier because now when I go out, I try to wear a mask and stuff. But it's very, uh, you know, depersonalizes, I think, the experience. It's harder to connect with somebody when they can't like, read your face. 
Yeah, for sure. But you do have experience in communities and talking to communities and working with communities. Uh, and, and so both in Madagascar, I think you mentioned, and in Nepal, you did aquaculture projects. Have those experiences helped you understand how to connect with people when you go into a community? And, and what are some of the lessons that you've learned? Yeah, when I go to the communities, any community, the first thing I do is not ask questions. The first thing I do is like, I'll go and just try to talk to somebody about like, I don't know, if their kids are playing. I'm like, oh, your kid's so cute. If I have like in Nepal, people would always be like, I don't know, they, you know, like, are you married? Where are your kids at? And I'm like, oh, I have kids. And I'll be like, oh, I have a, you know, I have like a picture of like my cat or something. I'm like, oh, and I have a cat. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we don't have those here or something like that. Um, but yeah, anything, the biggest thing is patience, right? Like don't want to start asking questions until you have a relationship. So even in, in North Carolina, like I've, I've gone down to the fish house and I don't, I know I'll just show up and introduce myself, say hi. And I won't ask any questions now. And, and then I'll come back later just to like, you know, I've offered to like shovel ice and pack fish just to like get more time with somebody just so they know me better. Um, in Nepal, like it's more village life. So like, you can, I could help somebody, I don't know, they would always be like making a basket or something, just hang out and do something and be helpful before you start like talking to somebody. Um, I think in Madagascar, but like I, I would go fishing sometimes with the ladies and we'd go like catch crabs, which was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to do something to like bond with them. You can't just go in there and be like, uh, cause you're an outsider, you know, and it, no matter, even in Madagascar and Nepal, even in here, like, you know, I could, you know, it, it would take me probably 20 years to really be considered an insider. Right. So, and I, I recognize that, like, I will always be an outsider and that's totally fine, but I have to do that with a lot of respect and like, just be very patient. It's like, uh, I guess the, the, the most important thing you can do when you're working with a community. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that people don't really think about is there's, and you, you touched on it, there's this history, there's this history of people coming in and not only asking questions and taking what they want, but then also trying to tell you what you need. So how do you, um, so in Nepal, when you worked on this aquaculture project on the carp farming, which I don't know if it's, uh, problematic if carp escaped into some of the rivers or, you know, out of, I don't know if they could get from these ponds and, 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 you know, but how did that project come about and was the local community part of saying, Hey, we need carp farming Mm -hmm. or did someone kind of come in and say, we're going to give you carp to farm because, (laughs) right. Yeah, no, no, you, you, this is so great. And this is really hard too. And like, uh, especially as a PhD student, there's all sorts of random funding proposals that I'm like supposed to apply to. And I need to come up with a proposal and I need to like essentially like assume what I want to research and what a community needs. And so like, you know, so it's, it's kind of backwards that way. Nepal and Madagascar was great because it was, um, in Nepal, uh, I worked with a local university, and that local university functioned as like an extension unit for agriculture and aquaculture. So the the community that I worked in approached the university for their extension services, and then that university worked with the NGO to get funding for the project. Um, and so then I, I was there, and so everyone was of course on board because the indigenous community there was leading it. Um, and so working for an indigenous-led project. Um, is always the best as like a researcher who's trying to do community-based work. 
Where Madagascar is similar. There's an NGO there that have been working there for like a couple of, um, almost a decade or, um, and they work with the community to form an association. So then the fishing association would approach the NGO and be like, hey, this is what we really, really want to work on. And then the NGO would try to like co-manage it and make it happen. And then in North Carolina, um, this is through a Sea Grant, Sea um, uh, Grant funding. And so Sea Grant is like a federal, well, it's, I don't know, it's federal, but it's state money. Um, and they have like a list of priorities that they, the state wants research, um, not necessarily the shrimping community. Um, so that might explain why some of the shrimpers don't want to talk to me because the state has decided that they're interested in getting more information about what's going on with the shrimp, but the communities themselves haven't really been uh, part of designing the study. Yeah. And well, and so I, I think this is so great because I, I don't think, I think that what you said is it's usually backwards and, mm-hmm. um, and those projects never work. Um, I know one community that they were given, like an organization just came in and gave them stoves yeah, to, to cook with, it. right? Yeah, it, it's like yeah. everybody thinks, like, let's solve the deforestation problem by just giving you stoves, and then they don't use the stoves. Mm-hmm. And when when the person was relaying this to me, I, I said, did anybody ask them, like, maybe they need to cook in a special way? Like, mm-hmm. uh, maybe there's certain cultural things that, that prevent them from wanting to cook in that way? Did anybody ask? Mm-hmm. No, and now there's just a pile of garbage of stoves. <laughs> I believe that, yeah. Uh, in Madagascar, a lot of folks will cut down mangroves for, for firewood so they can cook. Um, and they will, like, people are always like, oh, yeah, we need to get some like propane gas. But propane is so expensive for these communities I was working with. Financially, it's just they can't do it. And so, yeah, I've seen, I mean, most, I, I told you earlier, I'm interested in like development work, but it's very flawed. Like, I'm the first to admit it. And I want to see that change, like bottom up, community driven. Um, approaches are always the best. It's just hard because a lot of the funding is top down. And unfortunately, at least, I don't know, maybe as I get more along in my career, it will be better, but I'm definitely, unfortunately, uh, I have to follow, you know, funding all the time, just where it goes. I'm like desperate. I'm like, give me more. Yeah. That's, that's the thing I think people don't realize about, Mm -hmm. you know, science and research is that we don't necessarily set the agenda. What's fascinating about this is that I was at COP26 and there was a lot of conversations around adaptation and mitigation and the funding. There was a, a very big, um, uh, well, let's just say negotiations went many, many, many days in and it was all around the money because uh, these communities and, and countries that are being disproportionately impacted, many of them coastal communities, are wanting to, uh, they, they, they can't uh, engage in mitigation activities because it's too expensive. And the way that the funding is structured, they can't get the funding. It takes, so, they have so many hurdles to get the funding that by the time they actually get the funding, it's too late to implement the, the mitigation or adaptation projects that they had developed. So there was a lot of conversation about trying to, uh, instead of making it top down, make it more bottom up in terms, <laughs> and nobody could agree on how to release the money in a much easier way to fund the projects that could make a really big difference in people's lives. And in particular women's lives, because I love what you said about the women in Nepal and it's not just the women in Nepal. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's all over the world. Women are most, uh, the ones who are disproportionately impacted by climate change. Um, And uh, obviously even uh, we saw that with the pandemic, women are disproportionately impacted. So 
I was curious though about the Madagascar project. So you said you did a Fulbright. Can you tell us a little bit about what is a Fulbright and, and what that project was and yeah. Yeah. Um, so I did a Fulbright student award. There's a couple of different types of Fulbrights. This one was for, um, you can do either to go teach English abroad or to do a research project. So I applied for the research one. Um, you have to find a host institution that's willing to take you on. Um, you write a proposal, fill out all this paperwork, uh, and then you send your application and then you see what happens. And I luckily made it through. Um, and it's funded by the U.S. Department of State. Um, so then they send you over, they fund you, and then you get to spend nine months with your host institution to try to carry out a project. Um, so I was in a place of Madagascar called Mike Toronto. It's on the, the West Coast. Um, I did go and take a look at the lemurs and all the fun jungles and rainforests to thrive. We can talk about lemurs too. I love them. Um, on the coast, there's not a lot of lemurs, unfortunately. Um, but they do have a lot of fish, coral reefs, and uh, now there's been a kind of a recent push for a lot of community uh, managed uh, marine areas, um, or they call them locally managed marine areas, or LMMAs, lots of acronyms. And some of these LMMAs are recognized by the state government, meaning like the Madagascar government. Um, so they are legally protected. And then some of them are not quite there yet. They're under the process to become like fully uh, protected by the government and things like that. Uh, but anyway, these communities, um, they all kind of get together and they decide how they want their, their area to be fished. Like, is there, uh, you know, certain seasons, uh, a lot of like marine spatial planning essentially that goes on in these little, these little areas. And so I was there trying to update a, a social census for all of the communities that was using this, this one uh, LMMA. It was called the Nosy Barren Marine Protected Area. Um, it's one of the largest protected areas in the Indian Ocean. Um, but it's really hard to get to, so you don't hear about it a lot. There's not a lot of tourism or anything like that uh, there. But this area is huge, and it has some islands. It has some coastal communities to the north, to the south. And so my job was to go and survey all these coastal communities and just get basic demographic social information um, to kind of understand how many people are using this, this uh, protected area, uh, how many of these people are, like, extremely fisheries dependent, what is their uh, occupation, you know, get ideas of like how many kids they have. Is there a school nearby? Um, this kind of gave us a nice baseline. Uh, well, for the organization I was working for, Blue Ventures Conservation, they were they're like one of the biggest. Uh, well, they're pretty international now, but they're the biggest uh, marine conservation organization working in Madagascar, and they also I think have expanded to Indonesia, more or less, Belize, Kenya. I don't know. They're everywhere now. But yeah, so anyway, there I was just trying to get baseline information. It was it was it was a really good time. I got to see parts of Madagascar that I don't think many people have ever seen. Um, but part of this was is I worked with a team of ten local uh, um, people, and I I gave them all iPad tablets, and we had like a little survey, and we would just walked around these different communities, and we'd go talk to people, and if they wanted to, they could tell us you know about their household. Um, so I did that for probably. I, don't know, I did that for probably six months. Like uh, the first three months in Madagascar, you know, I had to, I had to re like remember how to speak French, start learning Malagasy. You know, you don't really know what you're doing the first couple of months in a country. So when I see these like short-term consultancies for development projects, I always kind of roll my eyes. So I'm like, oh, it's really hard to get anything done in three months. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, and even in nine months, it's not there. Like I've had friends who do, who do Peace Corps and they don't even know what they're doing until like a year and a half in. And then they're supposed to go home and like, you know, at six months. And that's why a lot of people extend. But anyway, this gave us baseline data. Um, that, so now the organization that I was working for, they kind of know, okay, we have this many people who are fisheries dependent. We know that this area needs more infrastructure. Like they don't have clinics there. They could use more, uh, uh, like so they could use a school there. Like all this kind of like baseline uh, information that's really helpful for a strategic development, like growth plan for, the, for that area. Now you wrote about, cause you also do some wonderful writing, some wonderful oh, yeah. communication writing, and I'll make sure I put some uh, links to some mm-hmm. of those articles in the show notes. One of the things that you wrote about in Madagascar was uh, octopus farming. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, I, these are part of the targets, uh, you know, to, uh, I guess, make things sustainable and is oct- what is octopus farming and is it really sustainable? Not just for people, but like for the mm-hmm. octopuses. Yeah. I mean, great questions. I will say like, I completely acknowledge that octopus are so smart and, you know, I've read, uh, my octopus teacher or and all of that. Like I, I know how great they are, but uh in Madagascar I hope you know everyone knows that like livelihood food security is like a very pressing issue so you can't be upset if somebody wants to go eat an octopus like it's they just need to eat octopus it's it's fine so in yeah in Madagascar um folks like to eat octopus but there's this new shift where they're trying to export them to markets in Europe because um they are a, a delicacy in some places um, and octopus, they are sustainable um, because they have such short life cycles. So, uh, I mean, it depends on the species, but a typical octopus, they live, they don't live more than two years. Um, and so what these communities are doing is they have what they call octopus preserves. So they have an area that usually has lots of uh, rocks where octopus like to hang out. And so octopus will lay eggs and then the female dies after they lay the eggs. And then those little eggs will hatch. And then within two years, they get pretty big. Um, within like six months, eight months, they can get to a nice harvestable size. And so the community will like set off aside an area and be like, okay, we're not going to, we're not, no one's going to fish in this area for, you know, six months. And then they'll open up the reserve. They catch more octopus. Um, they sell them, they export them. They make a nice, uh, a nice little uh, bit of income compared to just selling to a local market since they're exporting them. So yeah, it's been really successful just because octopus are. Um, pretty easy to catch in this area like even women get really involved with it because um, they can just go wade out into the water like they'll see women with their kids out there and they'll even kids will go out there and then everyone try to hunt octopus and then have a big party and it's usually a pretty good time okay okay well yeah and i mean i think that um so so there's a difference between sustainable harvesting to feed yourself feed local communities mm-hmm. and and exporting to try to feed the hunger of a global uh, world that wants a delicacy. So is there, are, right. Do they, yeah. do, right? I mean, that's what we've seen with shark fin, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a considered a delicacy and shark mm-hmm. populations have been decimated. Do, do they have, um, you know, sort of community is regulating themselves on, on the harvest? Cause they, they understand that they, if they want it to continue in the long term, that mm-hmm. this is something that they need to regulate and limit, um, in the short term. Yeah, so they rotate the octopus reserves. Um, so we're never overfishing an octopus reserve. And so you, one year, this will be the octopus reserve. They close it down, they fish it the next year, and they rotate it. And rotating fishing areas, that's a very common practice in a lot of indigenous cultures, especially in uh, the Pacific Islands and 
uh, Malagasy people are more similar to like Polynesians than any like mainland African. It's a really like interesting place in itself. So they have a lot of Polynesian culture there. Um, and they fish octopus with spear. It's very like low, it's not very industrial, I guess is a good way to say it. And that in itself kind of manages fishing effort because if the octopus goes deeper, uh, I mean, there's some guys that will go out and try to like swim and spear them, but most people are just waiting around. Uh, and so that kind of is like a, um, one way that the fishing effort is regulated just in the way that they're doing it. Yeah, which I think, you know, this is where the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, corporate um, big trawlers, uh, there's yeah. nothing regulating them. And in fact, it's it's limiting the resource availability for these local communities and their ability to have a sustainable livelihood um, by participating in the global market. So uh, even though I don't eat octopus and the UK just designated finally octopuses and other cephalopods as protected under animal welfare laws, I think that, um, you know, traditional spearfishing of octopuses, uh, who am I to say that that's not uh, okay? I think that um, some of our our corporate trawlers uh, that are are um, sweeping up entire collections of species is probably um, less humane than <laughs> than that. Okay, so speaking of marine environments and protecting them, you also wrote another article that was really great, and it 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 was because conservation issues are rarely as simple as oh let's uh, let's not harvest here or let's do this to protect this species over here. And one of the articles that you wrote about it was really fascinating was unpacking sort of the geopolitics of squid. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think when people hear squid that they're like major geopolitical issue going on here. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you mind unpacking that story a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I'll have to put a lot of caveats in this. Uh, so squid is, um, again, they're considered a fairly sustainable species and they're super tasty uh, because they have such short, uh, rapid growth cycles. In the South Atlantic, squid is gets a little bit geopolitical. And this is because the South Atlantic is... Um, one of the, I think it's the, the largest part of the ocean that does not have um, what we call a regional management fisheries organization. And we call these RMFOs. And so RMFOs are, you'll find them all over the world for, you know, sometimes for different species that like you'll hear a lot about the, the tuna RMFOs that are, and it's for like species that move in between different uh, marine territories and borders, right? I mean, fish don't care about borders, um, but we sure do. However, because in the South Atlantic, you have a little bit of a, I should say, a lot of a conflict going on between the Falkland Islands or the Iles Malvinas, depending on who you're talking to. So there was a war fought over these islands in the 80s. Um, And this was at the same time that the United Nations Law of the Sea Agreement um, got passed shortly after. And then everyone started uh, uh, doing fishing licenses and things like this. Well. In the Ilas Malvinas or Falkland Islands area, you have lots of squid. Um, and similarly, outside of that is Argentinian waters. Um, and then you have also the high seas right there. So the first thing you know is that anything that happens in the high seas is like fair game. It's just lawless in the sense that no one regulates the high seas. Um, there is some, some debates going on and trying to sign some high, uh, high seas treaties right now in the United Nations, but those usually take 10, 20 years for them to, to figure out. Um, so maybe we'll see some more regulations in, in the future. Um, and then you have Argentinian uh, uh, 
exclusive economic zone that's just marine territory. And then you have Islas Malvinas, Falkland Islands. Um, and so you have one of the largest populations of squid is going on in this area, right? And you see lots of vessels coming from, from Asia, um, coming to this area, fishing squid like crazy. And when they fish these squid, they use these giant lights on their boats and you can actually see them from, from space. Um, but it's, this area is predicted to have some of the highest levels of unregulated, uh, illegal or unreported fishing uh, in this area. And part of the reason that is happening is because there's not a lot of coordination between all these other uh, states because they don't, they don't want to acknowledge each other because by acknowledging each other, that means that you recognize them as uh, a state that they don't want to be recognized as, if that makes sense. It does. Um, yeah, yeah. So this is just the way it kind of is, is you have, and occasionally you have these vessels, they go into the Argentinian waters and the Argentinian Coast Guard will, will either arrest them or there's been some cases where they've sunk a vessel. Um, if they go into the Falkland Islands or U.S. Malvinas waters, the, the U.K. has uh, some Navy forces and patrol ships going on there that might regulate them. Um, but for the most part, there's it's kind of crazy out there. And I've, I've talked to some folks who, who've gone out there and they've said, like, you know, it's weird. It's like a, it's a city out there and like the vessels are going so close to each other. Like sometimes, you know, uh, they might bump into each other. It's really dangerous. And this is all happening like 100 miles, 200 miles off of, like the closest piece of land. So if anything goes wrong, it goes wrong fast. Right. And and what's happening with the squid, though, with all the unregulated harvesting? Are the squid sort of the fall guy here? So squid harvest is really all over the place. Some years they get like, oh, my goodness, like so much. Um, I want to say this area, I forget the statistic, contributes to like 90 percent of the world's total squid harvest or something like that. Um some years they catch a lot and some years they don't. It's very boom or bust. And that's just because um, squid or kind of like shrimp where they're very sensitive to environmental factors and hues. However, they are really worried about squid are really important to the food chain for all sorts of other critters, um, especially a lot of whales um, and marine mammals that are kind of down that way. And so there is concern about like, okay, well, if we are taking so many squid out of the environment, what does that mean for, for some of these bigger animals that depend on squid? Um, and so there is some research going on about trying to figure out these species interactions. Um, and luckily a lot of the, the vessels that are regulated to fish there, they have really good catch data. So they can start to kind of do some of the math and do the models to figure out, um, you know, how much might be important to the ecosystem. Um, but the problem is not going to get fixed unless there is some more regulation and management. And just like we talked about earlier, just communication, just talking to each other would help the situation, even if it is unofficially. Um, but unfortunately, politics tends to trump all that. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I, I think about when I think about equity um, and, you know, inclusion. I also think about when it comes to resources in particular, I, I also think about other species. And I'm always struck by how we, we, we not only fail for humans, but we also fail for animals because I feel like there should be a place for the right of, of squid and the animals that rely on squid to mm -hmm. be able to have access to these resources without us just gobbling every square inch of everything um, around the world. But that's another show topic. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I want to be sensitive to your time. And I, I guess I'm curious, you know, having grown up in North Carolina and, 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 and found a passion for marine sciences and, and, and fisheries and fish, 
um, you know, how do you connect with nature when you, when you, what is your point of entry? <laughs> and it may be uh, multiple types, but what's your point of entry? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like now with COVID and me being a PhD student, right? I connect with nature. You're looking at it. This is my nature. This is me and my natural habitat. <laughs> okay. For those of you who can't see, I'm looking at a uh, bookcase and a door. <laughs> yeah. My office is where they put all the extra furniture they don't want. So I'm just surrounded by furniture in here. I, I, you know, that is the life of a PhD student. Yeah. Um, no, but so I, I do get out. I go, I mean, I'm not far from the outer banks at all. So I'll go out there and just hang out, uh, big into camping when I can. Um, yeah, I, um, you know, I live in Charlotte. Well, my parents live in Charlotte. So when I go back there, I, we have this really nice whitewater center where I go and I'll go rafting or kayaking. Um, yeah, it is important. I think about this a lot because I used to like, after the, doing so much field work and now I just, I sit at a desk and I, I read a lot. You know, reading is very important when you're doing like academic stuff. But then I'm like, oh, I, I feel, sometimes I feel very hypocritical because I'm like, I'm reading about, you know, fish, nature, conservation, whatever. But like I'm, I'm in a, you know, I feel very far removed from it sometimes. And so I, you know, I hear this a lot too from researchers where it happens. Like, you know, you just, you just somehow end up being on a desk all the time and you're not really out there, out there, which I, I like, I get it. Cause I, you know, I have these classes I have to take, but also I'm like, oh man, like I do need to get out more. Yeah, no, it's yeah. true. And, 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 you know, you sort of, you know, you come into it for the love of nature, for the love of conservation, for the love of of, of, of people or the planet, whatever, you know, or puzzle solving. I'm a big puzzle solver too. Love it. I was either, I was either going to be a forensic anthropologist, um, you know, a foreign officer at a, some international, you know, embassy or a police detective or, and it turns out I'm a scientist. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, because I get to ask questions and answer them and, you know, and largely without a lot of bureaucracy, I can just come up with my own questions and mm -hmm. go with it. So, but this is what happened is after years and years and hours and hours of being in the field, all of a sudden it's like years and years and hours and hours of sitting at a desk. And it was like, I had a moment where I'm like, why? This is not, this is not why I did this. And so I try as hard as I can to go out every single day, to go somewhere once mm -hmm. a week, somewhere new that I haven't been um, I actually came up to North Carolina and I wasn't able to connect with you in person for a video, but we're going to, we're going to work on that. Uh, maybe another time I went out to Pea Island. And, oh, I love Pea Island. Oh my gosh. It was, it was yeah. incredible. And I, you know, I got there really early. Nobody wanted to be there apparently at seven 30 in the morning, except me. And so that was great. I felt like I had the whole place to myself mm -hmm. and there was all the swans, the tundra swans. I think they're tundra swans and the snow geese. And, and then I was walking, you know, down the, this, uh, trail and all of a sudden there was a deer and she looked at me and, and I looked at her and then she lifted up that big white fluffy tail. It looked like the end of a mop and <laughs> it did. I never saw such a big white tail on a, on a deer. And she ran a few, a little ways and then she stopped and looked back at me and I just stood still. And then like, we just sit, stood there for a while looking at each other. And then I said, okay, I'll turn around and go the other way. So you can go about your, whatever you were doing. I interrupted your breakfast, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, it was great. I mean, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of birds were there and, um, yeah, it was pretty special. So, 
So that was my attempt to go do something new and be out and and see something I'd never seen. So I want to thank you for your time. You're doing such exciting work and I will put links into the show notes for anything, uh, social media, all that. So people can keep in touch with you. Do you have a Twitter account? (laughs) I've been meaning to make one because they say academic Twitter is like so important, but I just am so bad at social media. I am going to make one eventually. I just haven't, I'm not active on it. Um, Okay. I'm not really, I'm really bad at social media. Well, how can I tell my friends I, I use LinkedIn and they're like, that doesn't count. I'm like, okay. Okay. Um, Well, how can folks keep up with you? How can folks keep up with your writing that you're doing? Do you have a Um, blog or? I haven't, I, anything that I do, I'll post on LinkedIn, but also you can always email me. I like, you know, if anything, hopefully this is shown that I like chatting with people. So yeah, feel okay. free just to, to reach out to me. I'm always happy to chat about fish, conservation, politics, weather, whatever. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And uh, okay. thank you again for the invitation. This has been really nice. Absolutely. You know, International Day of Women and Girls in Science is pretty personal for me. I think that's because the anti-science, anti-leadership messaging, it starts early when we're just young girls. For me, that looked like, well, being made fun of for preferring to play in the dirt rather than with Barbie dolls. It meant my curiosities about the skeletons I dug up in the yard like a seahorse were not indulged. It meant more focus was put on my clothes and my hair than my passions and my aptitudes. Why? Simply because I was a girl. And now, I see the same opportunities in my professional life being funneled toward men. Leadership opportunities, papers getting more easily published, grants being more likely to be funded. Why? All because there are boys who are still making the rules on the playground of life. The thing is, this isn't fun and games. For women everywhere, this can be life and death. I would love to say that things are different, that the playing field is level, that our work is done, and we've gotten there, and equality has arrived. Well, if that were true, then why are PhD graduates 50-50 men and women, but men hold more professor positions and subsequently more leadership positions? And why are women funneled out of professor positions, and into teaching and service. When it comes to being represented in books, television, podcasts, or other media, why are uneducated white male non-scientists chosen to represent science over women who are actual scientists and science communicators? And if men weren't clinging to their positions of power, why do they continue to steal their, the ideas of women instead of advocating for them? And yeah, that happens a lot. Equality has not arrived for women in general, and definitely not in STEM fields. Not when it comes to pay, opportunities for jobs, grants, publishing papers, being asked to be speakers on panels, and being chosen to represent the fields they advance. You know, we have two more Women in Science series dedicated episodes coming up, but don't worry, Wild Connection will continue to highlight incredible women doing badass work in all of the STEM fields. Thanks for listening. Until next time.